Well, guys, I think it's gonna be one of those nights. Touch your neighbor and say, uh-oh. I just really do. I mean, Chris was reading the teaching text and he, was, he had like three verses left and I was about to be like, can we thank Chris for reading our teaching text tonight? That's just how excited I am to get up here and preach this word for you. I really think that it's just gonna be one of those nights. Um, really for me, it's been one of those weeks. Um, this week we did a uh, conference for our staff. It's our annual staff conference where we get together. It's called Elevate University and we have a couple of days where our leadership team just invests in our staff and some of our volunteers and just sets the course for the year ahead. And they spend so much of their lives and time pouring out and investing in you. And we just wanted to be able to invest in them. And it was incredible two days of just experiencing the presence of God and looking toward the future. And I have so much expectation in my heart for what Jesus is building in this house and in this generation and in each and every one of you. And I cannot wait for what God is gonna do in the next couple of weeks and some of the things that I'm gonna get to share with you. It's just gonna be so unbelievably exciting. Um, As Joe shared, uh, we got to spend time with leaders from India and we had uh, people in town from Belgium. And guys, that was just so much fun to be able to hang out with some of those Belgians. Christian and Matthias, if you're watching online, what's up? Everybody say, hey. Um, I'm confident that they're watching uh, right now because what they experienced here was so fresh and so real and so revitalizing for their soul. Uh, One funny thing that happened with them is when they were with us, uh, Christian grew up and he like, his dad was like a gun fanatic, but in Belgium, you can't really have guns. And so when they were coming over, they were working this thing out and uh, Matthias asked us, he said, hey, my friend Christian would mean the world for him if he was able to shoot guns. He hasn't been able to do it since he was like 10 years old and his like dad passed away. And it was just this like emotional thing. Is there any way that we could like set up something where like y'all could go shoot guns? Because he's like, I don't know if this is how it works or not, but I feel like in America, y'all could just like walk into a building and shoot a gun. And I was like, that's exactly how it is in America. God bless the USA, right? So they came and we took them and we shot guns. We shot like AK-47s and nine millimeters and shotguns. And it was amazing. I think they both got saved again, okay? And so... It was quite the week spending time with them. And uh, this week we're getting ready to send my, uh, my little baby girl to first grade, y'all. Yeah. All week long, I've just been like undone by my like, little baby getting ready. She starts first grade tomorrow. So I would say pray for her, but really pray for her mom, okay? Because uh, that's gonna be an emotional step. And so we've been spending this week going to teachers conferences and you know, getting everything said and like making sure that she knows how to read. How many of you have ever taught a child how to read before? Okay, all right, it is one of the most glorious and frustrating things on the planet, okay? Because you start off really kind when you teach a little kid to read, right? You're like, you can do it, sound it out. You're like covering up words, you're like trying to give them hints, and then eventually you're like, it's restaurant! Okay, just, it's restaurant, just say it, restaurant, right? And you kind of lose, you know, patience. And, you know, that's kind of how I feel tonight, okay? There's this part of me that like really wants you to get something. And then there's this part of me that's like, it's restaurant. Like I want for you to get tonight so unbelievably bad. And this this week has really been a week. And I think tonight is really going to be one of those nights. Uh, We started this series last week called Awakening. Let me hear you say Awakening. And uh, throughout this series, we are looking at some of the great revivals throughout human history, some of the great outpourings of God's spirit where he showed up in a powerful, magnificent way and he opened people's eyes and he changed everything for the course of history. And we're just asking God, would you do that again in us? And I told you I've been preparing for this series of messages for several months and it's paving the way for a series of messages that I've been preparing for several years. And it's really going to be so massive in the life of our church. But tonight is kind of like one of those messages 
one of those like domino effect hinge point fork in the road, crossroads kind of messages where if you get tonight's message, then it can really change everything. Everything else just kind of becomes an outcome of what happens if you get the reality that we are going to talk about tonight. And so I'm really hoping that for you tonight is one of those nights. It was in 1643 at the age of five when King Louis XIV took his seat on the throne of France. King Louis ruled for 72 years. He was the longest European monarch. He won wars, expanded the empire, grew the economy, and brought unparalleled prominence and prestige to France. And King Louis thought he was something because he did it. He lived in the renowned palace of Versailles, just outside of Paris, the most elaborate construction project of this century. He lived with 4,000 servants and 1,000 nobles and friends. He spent his time hunting, gambling, and ruling with an iron fist. King Louis was called the Grand Monarch. That's what others called him. He famously said of himself, I am the state. When once Louis was pressed by uh, the fact that he may be overstepping his power, he said, I am the state. I am France. His reference to himself came up as the sun king because he said that he stood just as the center of the solar system was deemed, uh, the, the sun was the center of the solar system. He was at the center of France. His power was at the center of the people. But King Louis' favorite title for himself was King Louis the Great. King Louis the Great. By the time Louis died, he had outlived his son and his grandson. His funeral needed to be a testament of his greatness, his lasting greatness. Louis had a priest in his court, Jean-Baptiste Massillon, who was widely considered the greatest orator, not just in France, but in the whole of Europe. Louis gave these strict, ornate instructions about the way that his funeral would go. He would lay in state for 45 days. His procession would be 12 hours long through the night. He would be buried in a gold and ornate coffin. His service would be at the Notre Dame Cathedral. And at his service, the entire cathedral would be completely dark, only dimly lit by one single candle. The candle would be positioned above the coffin, the gold coffin, to reflect to bounce off his greatness, that one single candle reflecting off the gold coffin, bouncing his greatness throughout the entire cathedral for the whole of France to see. When Louis died, Massillon did exactly as the king instructed, 45 days in state, 12-hour processional, golden coffin, Notre Dame, one single candle. At the funeral, thousands of people stood there in silence, watching the flickering glow of this candle reverberate Louis's greatness across the whole of Notre Dame's cathedral. Massillon, the great priest, rose to eulogize the king. But as he walked up the steps, Massillon diverted from the plan. And what happened next, no one expected. As Massillon walked up the steps to take his place at the podium, he reached out and snuffed out the candle that was representing Louis' greatness. A paralyzing hush came over the whole of the cathedral. Then in the darkness of the Notre Dame Cathedral, the priest proclaimed these words which have reverberated throughout human history. 
He said, only God is great. Only God is great. And my prayer is that what happened in that cathedral in France hundreds of years ago would happen right here in your heart tonight. My prayer is that you would wake up to the reality that only God is great. I pray that tonight you would wake up to the bigness of God. I am desperately hoping that something would happen in the imagination of your heart and your mind and your soul where you become so captivated by a beautiful, grand, glorious picture of God that you see life for what it is, you see people for what they are, and you determine to walk out of this room tonight spending the totality of your days completely different because you know that only God is great. We live in a day and age, we live in a world that much like Louis has a very grand view of ourselves and a very small view of God. We live in a world that has a very small view of God. God is in a box. He's on the back burner. At best, he's seen as a genie in the bottle and at worst, he's seen as a fairy tale. We have a small, finite picture of God. He's reduced down to an invisible servant who's there to fetch us what we want. He's inept, impotent, irrelevant, inconsequential in many of our lives. You see, we all have a center point, don't we? We all have something that the whole of our life orbits around. We all have a sun, if you will. We all have that one flickering candle that we are gazing at, a center point for our lives. And for many of us, it's our career or our entertainment or our kids or our sexuality or our sexual appetite. It's our marriage or athletics or leisure or money. We have something that the whole of our lives are orbiting around. But Jesus, he tends to be more the hobby that we enjoy in our spare time when it's convenient rather than the king who is sitting on the throne. People are big today. Opinions are big. Dreams are big. We've got big plans, big aspirations, big goals, big desires, and for far too many of us, we have a very small God. My prayer is that tonight you would awaken to his greatness. My prayer is that tonight you would awaken to his genius. I don't want to just give you a message tonight. I wanna to see your life change forever. There is nothing greater that could happen in your life than being awoken to the greatness of who God really is than for your small, tiny, kind of peripheral, on the fringe view of God, for that to be erased and eradicated and for him to become supreme and awesome and all-encompassing, for him to become majestic and grand and splendorful, for him to become worthy and matchless and enough. There's nothing greater that could happen in your life than for you to get gripped by the greatness of God tonight. For you to see that he is the incomparable one. He is the excellent one. He is the amazing one. He is the beautiful one. He is the worthy one. You know, something like this happened for me when I was late in high school. It was when I was in high school when I heard this series of messages that was preached by a little known pastor down the road named Gooey Liglio. And he preached this collection of messages titled Indescribable and How Great is Our God. 
And I will never forget what happened to me as I was sitting there and he was peeling back the layers of how big our universe is, how complex our body is, how intricately designed the human eye is, how far reaching our solar system is, and how great and glorious our God is. The way that every single element in all of creation is screaming and declaring to you and me that only God is great. The way that the very protein that makes up the compounds of the human body is actually in the shape of a cross, the very instrument that God had died on. The way that whales and stars and comets, if you put them together, are singing this chorus in harmony. How great is our God? And something happened to me being a 17, 18 year old kid hearing these messages. I woke up to something that I have never gone to sleep on and it's that only God is great. That he is the amazing one, that he is the infinite one and that life without him is no life at all. And my prayer is that that would happen to you tonight. My prayer is that your eyes would be open to something that they would never be shut on. You see, there are these sacred moments in redemptive history where God removes the veil, where he pulls back the curtain, where he shows people who he really is, where he wakes people up to what life is really about. Ezekiel, John, and Isaiah get perhaps the greatest wake-up calls of all time. There are variations in details of their vision, but they are unified in beauty. It is set in the throne room of God. And tonight I want to show you what happens when Isaiah wakes up to the greatness of who God is. But first I wanna pray for you. So would you pray with me? God, tonight I'm asking that you would show us your glory. God, tonight I'm asking that you would remove every distraction that is in our mind. God, that you would illuminate our hearts, that your spirit would come down, that you would give us a picture of you that we cannot shake, that you would give us an understanding of you that we cannot avoid, that you would shatter all of the small Sunday school felt bored, tiny, insignificant pictures of you that we've been carrying around. God, I pray that tonight that you would become unshackled from the stained glass windows that we've put you in and the religiosity that we've trapped you in and the cultural narrative that we've tried to set you in and that you would be the roaring lion, the conquering king, the suffering servant, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and who is and who is to come. Jesus, I pray that tonight we would see something in you that we've never seen before and it would leave us where we're never the same again. And I prayed in Jesus' name, all God's people said. Isaiah chapter six, verse one, in the year that King Uzziah died. In the year that King Uzziah died. We live in a society that does not want to slow down and think about weighty things. Have you noticed that? Your world, your life is so rushed. It is so hurried, it is so busy, it is so on to the next thing. Your calendar is so full that you have so little time to think about weighty things, heavenly things, eternal things. One of the great ploys of the enemy is to fill your life with so much activity and busyness and inertia and stuff that there's no time to think about the eternal. 
If he can get your mind thinking about the finite, then he can almost pull a veil over your eyes to make you believe that there isn't anything that's infinite. And so we do not usually slow down and think about the weightier things. We allow busyness and clutter and trivial things, entertainment to occupy our time, to fight for our attention, and to turn us into a generation of zombies who are just going through life, doing what everybody else tells us we're supposed to do. You graduate high school and you go to college and you try to get the best degree that you can to try to get the best job that you can to try to make as much money as you can to live in the biggest house that you can and drive the nicest car that you can and marry the most attractive person that you can and go on the best vacations that you can and eat the nicest food that you can, have the greatest experiences that you can. And everything is about progress. Everything is about excess. Everything is about more and more and more. And we wear these clothes and we post these things and we uh, aspire to these dreams, not really even knowing if it's what we want, not even really knowing if it's what will make us happy, not really even knowing if it's what will make us satisfied or sleep well at night. Actually, it has the opposite effect. We work so hard to get these things that society tells us that we so desperately need because we think that if we don't have them, then our lives are going to be miserable and pointless and empty. But it's actually in a pursuit of those very things that our life ends up becoming so stressed and panicked and hurried and worried that we find ourselves emptied of the very peace that we long to experience. And oftentimes, it takes an interruption, something of an interruption to actually see the infinite beauty of who God is. Just thinking about God feels like an interruption. Church seems to be an interruption, an interruption in my plans and my schedules and what I want to do and how I want to spend my time and I want to be on the lake and I want to go to this party and I want to see these friends and I want to go out to eat and I want to play pickleball and I want to go play tennis and all these things. And so God becomes an interruption, but sometimes an interruption is the very thing that is needed for you to wake up to the greatness of God. Did you notice that it was in the year that King Uzziah died? I do not want for you to lose the connection tonight between what happened in the life of Isaiah and the fact that it happened in the time that Uzziah died. For Isaiah, it happened when King Uzziah died. The king is dead. Let me announce it again. The king is dead. We move from dead King Louis to dead King Uzziah. Uzziah became king at the age of 16. He reigned for 52 years. He brought innovation and expansion to the kingdom. He was the second longest reigning king in Israel to Manasseh. He was the third best king to David and Hezekiah. He led Israel to become the marvel of nations. Their fame spread to Egypt. They experienced prosperity that had only been seen in the days of Solomon. Uzziah loved God. He worshiped God. He won wars, had the favor of the people, but Uzziah became proud. Pride always leads to downfall. Uzziah walked up to the altar and he started burning incense, a role that was only reserved for the priest. Uzziah lit the candle that wasn't supposed to be lit. No matter how great a leader becomes, whenever they see themselves as on par with God, they get snuffed out. And Uzziah's reign was snuffed out. God struck Uzziah with leprosy and Uzziah died. He died in obscurity and isolation all by himself. In this culture, when the king dies, your country is at its most vulnerable point. 
foreign armies begin to rise up to attack. Your borders have people that begin to creep their ways towards you. And I don't want for you to lose the connection that it's when Uzziah dies that Isaiah wakes up. You see, oftentimes, it is only when all of our other pillars fall that we can discover how truly sufficient God is. Sometimes, until you experience despair, you will never see the bigness of God. Until you see how small every other king you crown is, you will never see how truly big our God is. God will not often give us a picture of his bigness until we have the death of a dream, until the king in your life dies. Oftentimes we awaken to the bigness of God on the other side of the death of a dream. One of the greatest moments in your life can come when your earthly kings disappoint you, when your business fails, when relationships end, when the ACL tears, when rejection letters come, when the loan comes due. This is usually when God shows up. What we're getting ready to read is one of the most profound accounts of God's glory in the history of humanity. And we all want to see the glory of the Lord. I wanna ask you tonight, do you want your other king to die first? We all wanna see the glory of the Lord that Isaiah got to see. Do we want to live in the day that our King Uzziah dies? We all love Daniel's in the lion's den. Do we wanna get in the lion's den? We all love the resurrection of Jesus. Do we want the cross of Jesus? There's oftentimes no resurrection without a cross. And until you put to bed every other king, you're not gonna wake up to the greatness of the one true king. It was in the year that King Uzziah died. And I want for you to notice that nothing else is mentioned about Uzziah. This king, this great glorious king, I just read this massive stat, this bio of what he had done with his life. But all that's mentioned is, yeah, it's the year that he died. Because what happens is Isaiah got a vision of God that eclipsed his current reality. I want for you to know tonight, friend, that there is a vision that you can have of the Lord that will eclipse your current reality. It may be the year of your singleness, but this is the year that you could see the greatness of the Lord. And you may go, it was the year that I lost the child, but this was the year that I saw the Lord. And this was the year that the relationship ended, but this was the year that I saw the Lord. And this was the year that my dream died, but this was the year that I saw the Lord. This was the year that my business failed, but this is the year that I saw the Lord. There is a picture of the Lord that is available to you if you will reach out for it tonight that can eclipse your current reality. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, I want for you to imagine being Isaiah for a second. Imagine being a young, pious prophet. You're heavy-hearted. You're probably praying for a king. You're saying, God, give us a king, a better king, a worthy king, a king who will lead us, a king that will not forsake you. Maybe Isaiah is laying prostrate down on the ground. Maybe he's laying with his face towards heaven, or maybe he's in the temple and he's at the altar and he's on his knees. He's seeking the Lord in his moment of despair. His king has died. His nation is falling under attack and he turns his head towards heaven. Perhaps he's in his bedroom. Maybe he's just left the funeral, but he turns his attention towards heaven. And it says that he sees the Lord. 
Isaiah gets a vision, and I want for you to know the difference between a vision and a dream. You see, a dream, in a dream, you're seeing something that's not real, but could have real meaning. When God gives vision, he gives you the ability to see things that truly exist, but that you don't currently see with the naked eye. So what Isaiah is seeing is something that's real. You must know that tonight. That what he looks and what he sees, what he gazes upon with his own two eyes is real. It's substantive. It's reality. It's concrete. It's not ethereal. It's not abstract. It's not an idea. It's not symbolism. It's not a fairy tale. It's not make-believe. It's not something that he's hoping for or dreaming for. It's not a picture of what could be. It is what actually is. He sees something that's real tonight. And I pray that you would see it too. That this is a real place with real elements that one day we will totally see for real. And he says, I saw the Lord. Now, I want for you to circle that word Lord in your Bible, circle it, highlight it, underline it. This part is almost like a screeching halt in this encounter because this word Lord, oftentimes maybe in your translation of the Bible, it would be all capitalized L-O-R-D and it's painting this picture that this is the covenant name of God. This is Yahweh. This is the personal name of God. And so, don't lose this tonight, okay? When God wants to show people who he is and what he's like, he starts with his name. He goes, I have a name. He doesn't start with his power. He doesn't start with his awesomeness. He doesn't start with theory. He doesn't start with theology. He doesn't start with any of the omnis. It's not that he's omnipresent or omniscient. He starts with his name. He says, I have a name. I'm personal. I want to be known. I want to make myself known to you. This interaction of Isaiah, he goes, I saw the Lord. I saw Yahweh, the personal covenant God who's revealed himself to my people throughout history before. It would be this like flashback moment for Isaiah to Moses on Sinai who sees the Lord, who learns the name of the Lord. If you don't know the story, I'm just gonna jump over here. You're not gonna have it, but it's in Exodus chapter 33. Moses prays this prayer, this crazy, audacious, radical prayer. We've been praying it all night. God, show me your glory. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Flip the chapter, Exodus 34, verse five, the Lord descended in the clouds and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. This is who Isaiah sees sitting upon the throne. Not an abstract deity, not someone disconnected from reality, but a God who has a name, who's revealed his character, who's shown what he's like, who has a personality, who can be interacted with. Isaiah sees the Lord, and immediately he knows it's the Lord. That's the one that I've heard about. There's something in his physical posture that is screaming his character. There he is, the one I've waited for my whole life, the one my grandfather has told me about, the one that my grandfather's grandfather, grandfather told him about, the one that there's been stories about, the one that I've sang songs to. There he is, the Lord. God has a name. He's personal and intimate. He wants to interact and be known. 
This God who has a name is the God who's sitting on the throne. He's sitting on the throne. See, oftentimes the world that we live in and the situations that we find ourselves in, we ask this question all of the time, where are you, God? Where are you in my pain? Where are you in my trauma? Where are you in my difficulty? Where are you in China? Where are you in Russia? Where are you in the stock market? Where are you in my bank account? Where are you in the economy? Where are you in my loneliness? Where are you when I'm at my bed and tears color my pillow? Where are you, God? Isaiah says, I know exactly where he is. He is on the throne. We spend so much of our lives panicking, worrying, stressing. God is sitting, seated, ruling, reigning, Yahweh, the Lord, on the throne. He says, I see him seated on this throne. I wish I could take you to Revelation and describe this throne for you. It's got all of this beautiful, ornate gems, and it's just, it's designed like beautiful, like it would blow your mind what this throne looks like. It talks about the fact that this sea of glass goes out before him. It's all of these lampstands of fire are there burning. There's this incredible worship party that's happening around this throne. He goes, I see the Lord, and he's seated on the throne. He's not, he's not prancing. He's not pacing, he's not rubbing his hands, he's not nervous, he's not anxious, he's seated, settled, confident, authoritative, relaxed, completely, totally in control. He's on the throne. Then he says this, he says, I seem high and lifted up. It's this idea that he's above. See, so often we look down our noses at God and we question why. Why would you do that? How could you do that? Don't you know? Don't you know better? God, you should do things like this. You should let people do that. You should be okay with this. Love should work like this. Money should work like this. Family should work like this. We look down our noses at God and we question why he does the things that he does and why he has said the things that he has said. But when you get in his presence, you never look down. You only look up. You see that he is high and lifted up. It's this place that he's higher, this picture that he's higher than high, higher than the clouds, higher than the sky, higher than the stars. He's not just higher than some of the stars, he's higher than all of the stars. There's no distance that, that can be higher than he is high. He's high and lifted up. The transcendent one, the other one, the one who is in need of nothing from no one, he's not looking up, praying to anyone, asking anything to help him. He is high and lifted up all of creation exists independent from him or dependent upon him. He is independent from everything in creation. He is high and lifted up, great and awesome. He is first and best and most and ultimate. And then it says that this king who is seated on the throne, who is high and lifted up, he has a train of his robe. And it says that it fills the temple with glory. Now, in antiquity, the status of monarchs was oftentimes communicated by the size and splendor of their robe, by the material that it was used, the ornate detail that went into it, the length that it was. We, we see this reality bearing on us in modern times when brides get married and they have a long, ornate, beautiful dress, this train. You see the train and, you know, people are having to, like, deal with the train and fix the train and everything's focused on the train. And when she turns, you got to have somebody who's dedicated to taking care of the train and Isaiah says that when I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on his throne, there was this train 
and it filled the temple with his glory. Now, a better translation or understanding of train would actually be hem, hem, like the edge, the knitting of this garment, not the totality of it, but just the very edge that connected the train to the king. Okay, so you're tracking with me, not the, not the whole train, just the hem of the train. And it says that it fills the temple with glory. I'm gonna say that again. The hem, just the edge, not the totality of the train, but just the little part, the little piece that connects this robe to the back of the king. That, that little part right there, it fills the temple with glory. His robe in the throne room has reached everywhere and it has filled everything. The picture here is that the ground of the throne room is completely covered by this robe so that there is no place in the throne room of God for anyone else to stand. You can't stand in the throne room because the train fills the throne room. There is no place you can stand where you are not touched by his majesty, no place where you can stand where you are not touched by his glory. It's everywhere, it fills every container. Think about this for a second. This means that the heaven, the highest of heavens, the throne room of God still cannot contain the glory of God. Like, this is mind-blowing to me as I've been thinking about this this week. That means that when God made the heavens, he did not, des- when he designed his throne room, when he sat down with Angel Chip and Angel Joanna Gaines, and he started thinking about the details of the throne room of heaven, and he's thinking about the dimensions and the colors on the wall, and he's thinking about where it was going to start and where it was going to stop. God miscalculated because in his design, He didn't think about how big his robe was going to be. And so I just imagine that the archangel Gabriel's up there in heaven right now going, God, I think it's about time for a renovation. I think we need to do an addition. The train of your robe won't even fit in here. That's how awesome he is. That's the statement that he wants to make. My greatness knows no end, fills everything, everywhere, all of the time. The train of his robe fills the temple with glory. Verse two, above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings with which he covered his face and and two which he covered his eye and two with which he flew. Now, I could spend a long time just talking to you about the seraphs, okay? I studied these seraphs all week long. I was amazed, enamored, fascinated by these seraphs, these mind-blowing angels that would blow your mind. Uh, The seraphs, it's literally the burning ones, the burning ones. The picture is that they are always on fire. Like if you've ever heard that phrase, man, that person is on, on fire for God. These are the people who were originally on fire for God. These are like the OG Jesus freaks, okay? Just burning for the Lord. This is where that understanding comes from. They reflect the dazzling brilliance of God's glory to such a degree that they seem to be on fire. And they have six wings, okay? And it's so interesting to think about what their wings could be for. There's so many different, you know, ideas and thoughts and commentaries out there about why they have six wings. Initially, you would think that they have six wings so that they could speed, so that they could go fast, so that they could fly rapidly in haste to do whatever God asks. These angels are at his beck and call in his throne room for all of eternity. If he says something, they want to do it as quickly as humanly possible. And so they've got six wings so that they can fly faster than any creature could ever fly that's ever been created. But they're only flying with two of their wings. The scripture says that with two, they hide their face and with two, they cover their feet. 
Why would they do that? Why would they cover their face? You see, the reason that they would cover their face is because you and I are enamored by the creatures, but the creatures are enamored by God. And they know that he is too holy, too glorious, too majestic, too altogether perfect for them to even behold with their eyes. You know, as a kid, your parents likely taught you never look directly into the sun. Every week when I'm up here and kind of like getting ready for my message, I have to remember never look into those lights because I would just be blinded. I can't see you for like five minutes after that. These seraphs understand that they must cover their eyes with two of their wings because they are not worthy to gaze upon the sun. Only looking at him would, it would eviscerate these majestic creatures in an instant. And so they've got their eyes covered as to say, don't look at me, look at the one, gaze upon the true son. I am of nothing, of no significance. He is the one that you were created for. He is the one to marvel at. He is the one to behold. And my eyes are not even worthy to behold him. And with two, they cover their feet. Some say it's because of their humility. It's a sign of a statement of that they're servants and that they'll always be servants. But I think that they cover their feet because they know that there is no place that they would rather go. They cover their feet as to say, I am anchored here for all of eternity. Because now that I've seen this, there's nothing else that I'd rather see. It's almost like they've given themselves over to the Lord willingly said, I don't even need these two wings because this is where I want to be. One of the things that I think is spectacular to notice about these angels is that they've got two wings that they fly with, two wings that they cover their eyes with, two wings that they cover their feet with. So they're only working with two wings. They've got more wings for worship than they do for work. They've got more wings to stand in awe of God than they do to do something for God. So I'm just gonna invite some of you tonight who are exhausted and who are burnt out on religion and who are tired of faking it and are working so hard to earn your salvation and prove to God that you're enough, retract your wings tonight and focus on worshiping God more than working for God. Verse three, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook and the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Now, this Jewish use of literary device can't be lost on you, okay? He goes to the third degree of repetition. If you were to study the scriptures, you would see that at times there is dual repetition. You will see it's called Lord, Lord. You'll see king of kings. If you were to look at Genesis, you would see at time you fall in the pit of pits. You would see that there's gold of gold in Leviticus, but never other than right here and in the book of Revelation does the Jewish literary device of to the third repetition ever get used. Holy, holy, holy. The angel does not sing that he is holy or that he is holy, holy. He sings that he is holy, 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 holy is the anthem of heaven. It is what is resounding continually for all of history. Holy, holy, holy. I need you to know tonight that holiness is not just one of the attributes of God. Holiness is the sum of all of God's attributes. God is holy in his grace. He is holy in his love. He is holy in his power. 400 times throughout the scriptures, God is called holy. Demons call Jesus holy. 
Jesus called them, demons call them the Holy One of God. The third person of the Trinity, his first name, Holy. Holiness is a big deal to God. It means that he is perfect, morally perfect in all that he, he does. It means that he is cut off or separate from other than unlike the rest of creation, that he dwells in unapproachable light, that there is no rival, no equal, none to compare him with. For God to be holy, it means that he is God, that like him, there is no other. There's no challenger. There's no equal, no one on par with him. That's what they're saying when they say that he is holy. I found him. This is our guy. This is the one. There's no one else. No one who compares. No one who measures up. He is holy. He is God. No one compares. This happens over and over again. Every lap they take. It's like they burst into the course again. It's almost as if they, when they started, they thought that there was going to be another line to this song. Thought that there were going to be other verses, maybe a chorus, a great bridge where the drums drop out and everyone sings. But they made the first lap around and they go, he's holy. Next lap, he's holier. Next lap around, he's holy as what else will we say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty for all of human history. There are people who all they want to do is magnify the Lord, angels, all they want to do is make much of the king. I need you to know tonight, that God is certainly love. God is certainly full of grace. But if you were to survey the Bible and you were to survey most church services, it seems like somewhere along the line we got those two things reversed. Because the Bible says that God is holy 400 times. I just want you for you to know tonight that the Bible only says that God is love two times. And one of the reasons that we have a tragic misunderstanding of God a very tiny, small view of God is because we've reduced him down to being a lovey, cuddly, fluffy bunny who puts his arm around us and who makes us feel good, who picks us up when we're down, who's the pit man in our corner, who's going to be there as a rug no matter how much we walk all over him. And we do not see him as the holy, blazing, high king of heaven with whom there is no equal, rival, or compare. And tonight, I think that we need to recapture that. The angels say that the whole earth is full of his glory. This is the reason that it's so important to get out in creation. The reason that it's so important to go stargazing, to go camping, to go hiking. This is the reason that we go to the beach, to the mountains. It's because we know that the whole earth is full of his glory. The reason that the greatest intoxication of our generation is travel. I just want to travel. I just want to see the world. I don't really care how much money I make. I'll live in a minivan. I just want to travel. Give me a tiny home. I just want to travel. I don't care, I just wanna be remote, I'll do any job from anywhere, I'll crunch any numbers, work for any consulting firm, I don't care, I just wanna travel, I wanna see the world. Do you know why? Because the whole earth is full of his glory. But do you know the greatest demonstration of the glory of God is seen in the face of another human? Eight billion people around the world faces people created in the Imago Dei, the image of God that are screaming his glory, the reason that we fall in love with one another, the reason that attraction rages within us, the reason that we fall in love so desperately with people, the reason that we love and idolize our kids. That is this, this idolization of the glory of the Lord that is present in people, in you and me. God's going, it's everywhere. I've put it everywhere on everything and the angels are screaming it. Do you see it? Would you open your eyes? This is, the, this is the sermon of Romans 1 from creation. God is screaming, don't you see me? Every star in the sky, every sunset, every sunrise. 
every meteor shower, every flower, every waterfall, every ocean, every animal, every ounce of God's creation is screaming, don't you see me? The angels are screaming, it's his glory. You see, God's glory fills not just the temple, but the whole earth. God is so much bigger than we think. He transcends all the boxes that we try to put him in. He is not just some local deity. He's an authority that extends over those who don't even believe in him. He receives glory from those who would curse him. And one day, every knee will bow before him. He is the source and the sustainer of all things. He is the significance of all things. He is the originator and perpetuator of all things. He is the purpose of all things. He is the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end and every letter in between. He is everything. And as the angels say this, the foundation shook. It filled the temple with smoke. And I just wonder tonight, what shakes you? What moves you? What arouses you? What wakes you up? Is it another like? Is it a bonus check? Is it a meal? Is it a game? Is it some grown men dressing up in costumes, chasing around a ball? Is that what shakes you? Because when Isaiah gets this vision of the Lord, it shakes him. Smoke fills the temple. It's almost like this show, this production gets put on because of who God is. Then Isaiah responds, he said, woe is me for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This idea of woe is me is this self-renunciation. It's this self-judgment, this self-condemnation. It's not woe is she or woe is he. It's woe is me, not woe out there, woe in here. Isaiah is expressing this psychological, physiological, ontological crisis. He is going, I am coming to this moment of spiritual misery. I am seeing the totality of reality right before my eyes. There's, there's something bubbling up in me that I don't even have words for. For the first time in Isaiah's life, Isaiah understood who God is. And for the first time in Isaiah's life, Isaiah understood who Isaiah is. You see, this is what happens when you get in the presence of the king. You begin to see who you really are. We flatter ourselves. We elevate ourselves. But under the light of the Holy One, everything is seen as it is. If you've ever been to a hospital before, you know that if there's a problem that a doctor needs to operate on, before he'll just operate, he'll bring in a light, this big light that blinds you and it just lights it up and you see your skin and you're like, I don't know, is that blemished? I need to hit the tanning bed, get some lotion. And Isaiah goes, when you get in the presence of the Lord, the light of who he is shines on you and there is no more hiding, there's no more pretending, there's no more posturing. You can fool me and you can fool your spouse and you can fool your small group and you can talk yourself into whatever mental gymnastics you wanna talk yourself into and you can parade with culture and you can try to blend in with the rest of society and you can act like God is dead and Nietzsche won. You can act like all of that's real and that you don't have to address the reality of who he is. But one day, the light of eternity is going to shine on you. The glory of who he is is going to reveal everything within you. And you are going to join Isaiah. And you are going to say, woe 
is me. It's this idea that I am sinful, I am broken, and he is so broken that the idea here would, become, would be like he, he comes undone. He is ruined. Like my insides fall apart is what he's saying. Woe is me, my insides fall apart. Like it's, it's almost like that moment where you're moved to such emotion and you start crying and you want with everything in you to stop crying. You know everybody's looking at you as you're crying, but you just can't stop crying. All of the emotion that you've held in and that you pushed down, it's coming out. And for Isaiah, this woe is me is it's like, I'm dead, I'm done, I've been seen, I'm guilty, caught red-handed, nowhere to go from here. Woe is me, my insides are falling out. God sees me, he sees my wickedness, he sees my sinfulness, he sees my smallness, he sees every lie I've ever told. He sees every time that I've ever chosen myself instead of him. He sees it all and I see it too. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Why the lips? You ever think that? Why not, why not the hands? Why not unclean feet? Why not an unclean heart? An unclean mind? Why unclean lips? I mean, it could be because from the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. And so the wickedness within us comes out most often in the things that we say, the, the way that we speak about people and to people, the gossip that we engage in, the thoughts that we think. So maybe that, that could be potentially what he's saying here, but I think that it's something else. You see, Isaiah is the greatest Hebrew communicator of all time. Don't miss this tonight. Isaiah is the prophet with the golden tongue the greatest work of Jewish Hebrew literature that has ever been written is the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a mini Bible. It has 66 chapters imaging the 66 books throughout the Bible. It is poetry. It is beauty. It is the Jewish masterpiece. But here, Isaiah, the prophet with the golden tongue, the greatest Hebrew communicator of all time, says, the greatest thing about me is now nothing that I see him. The greatest thing that I see in myself is now seen as nothing now that I see him. That's why Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm telling you, if you would stand before the glory of the Lord, you would see that my looks are nothing. My youth is nothing. My talent is nothing. My career is nothing. My bank account is nothing. My friends are nothing. My travel is nothing. My Instagram is nothing. It is all nothing. My resume is nothing compared to him. He is so totally awesome and amazing that I'm a man of unclean lips. I am nothing, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Oh, yeah, by the way, they're nothing too. You see, so often God becomes small because people become big. But when you get in the glory of the Lord and you see the greatness of who he is, you stop letting your life be ruled by others' perception and others' opinions of you because all you want to do is live for the one who actually matters in the end. And so what happens here to Isaiah is what happens to a husband when he sees his bride, all the other girls vanish. What happens here to Isaiah is what happens when a climber stands at the foot of Mount Everest, every other mountain seems but a grain of sand. It's what happens when you find yourself out at sea with no sight of the seashore. It seems as if there is no end. And he says, I am ruined. And this is the best kind of ruined, the best kind of ruining that you could ever have happened to you. It's a ruining that I hope happens to you tonight where you get ruined of small dreams and a small life. 
It's where you get ruined of little desires, where you go, it's like you have that meal and food just doesn't taste the same anymore. It's like when you climb Everest, every other mountain seems like it's just boring. You get ruined. You get spoiled in his presence. You say, where else would I want to go? I hope that something happens for you tonight where you launch into a full-blown existential crisis and you go, what have I been doing with my life? I've been wasting it. The things that I've been glorying in are nothing before him. Have you met God tonight? Have you met God before? Have you ever encountered him or really encountered him? Because when you do, you'll never be the same. When you see how awesome he is, when you see what true worship of him is supposed to look like, when you see how infinite he is, how powerful he is, the fact that he has a name, the fact that he's on the throne, the fact that there is creatures created just to worship him, the fact that he holds all of human history in the palm of his hand, the fact that there's nothing that is too big or too small for him. Have you, have you met this God? Have you seen this God? The fact that he's totally righteous, totally glorious. When did it start to come home for you? When did the weight of his glory come down on you? When did his grace invade? Once you wake up to this reality, there's no going back to sleep. You see, God tonight shows Isaiah who he is, not because he wants to crush Isaiah, but because he wants to transform Isaiah. Tonight, I hope that you come face to face with the reality of your sin. I hope that the secret sins that you've been avoiding, that you've been pushing off and that you've been hiding in a corner and sweeping under the rug and not dealing with, I hope that tonight that they would just come bursting forth, not to crush you, but to transform you. If you've been looking for the gospel in this passage, here it is, Isaiah chapter six, verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. If you're looking for the gospel, here it is. There is an altar. Sin needs to be dealt with. Now this altar, it can't be the altar of incense. This must be the great altar, the altar where the Passover lambs were burned, where sin offerings were made. This is where the sacrifices were slain, killed and burned. It says that there is a live coal on the altar. But where is the sacrifice? That's what I wanna draw your attention to tonight. There's an altar with burning coals, but where is the sacrifice? Do you want your minds blown? Look up from the altar and see the one sitting upon the throne, the ancient of days, and see that in the fullness of time, he will step down from his throne, climb upon the cross. In John chapter 12, Jesus quoted Isaiah chapter six, and he says, whose glory did Isaiah see? He saw my glory. Jesus is the one who is sitting on the throne. Jesus is the king on the throne, and he is the coal who takes away Isaiah's sin. And the reason that Jesus wants to reveal your sin to you is to be able to take your sin from you. Isaiah chapter six, verse eight, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. Now this conversation that you just heard is Isaiah overhearing a conversation between God and what theologians call either the divine council or the Trinity. Look at the text again. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? 
and who will go for us. Who will go for us? Does that echo back in your mind to maybe Genesis chapter one where God says, let us make man in our own image? Isaiah has this vision of the throne room of the Lord. He sees Yahweh, the God who has a name, covenant relationship with his people, perfect in his character, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, seated on a throne, high and lifted up, train of his robe, filling the temple with glory. Seraphim flying around, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He falls down at his feet. Woe is me, I come undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. Sin is atoned for. Angel with tongs grabs a coal, touches Isaiah's lips, says, hey, I redeem you. This thing that you see is nothing. I'm gonna use it for everything. I'm gonna transform you and change the world. I'm gonna die the death that you deserve to die. I'm gonna pay the price that you deserve to pay. I will be the sacrifice to make your sin eradicated so you can be clean. And then this conversation breaks out. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have this conversation as Isaiah is in the throne room. I don't know how long he's there. There's this part of me that imagines that he's been sitting there for years, undone by the glory of the Lord, in awe of the majesty of the King. Then he hears this conversation in the background, this Trinitarian conversation. Whom shall we send? And Isaiah... The prophet who said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a land of people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, my insides fall out. I'm undone, I'm dead, it's over for me. Perks up. When he hears who shall we send, he joins in on that Trinitarian conversation. He says, here I am, Lord, send me. I'll go, I'll do whatever, wherever, say whatever to whomever. I will use my life for the glory of your name. Because people who have been forgiven much know that their job is to love much. Because people who have seen the greatness of God know it's their job to display the greatness of God. Because when you have had an encounter with the Lord like this, it is impossible to keep it to yourself. You say, I will use the three seconds that I'm on this planet to aim my life at the glory of your name. I will pour out everything that I have so that people can see the greatness of who you are. I want for you to know tonight that we will never see awakening happen in our generation until we recover this vision of Isaiah. Until we say, God, give us lips that are eager to sing with the angels. Give us knees that are eager to bend with Isaiah. Give us hearts that scream, here I am, Lord, send me. Let me ask you tonight, when did your view of God get so small? I just wanna take a second and remind you that he's not your caddy, and he's not your backstop. And he's not a second option. He's not a fallback plan. That he doesn't fit in a box. That he's not irrelevant, that he's not inconsequential. He's not a fairy tale. He's not meant to be played games with that he's the king, that he's the conquering king. When did our vision of God get so small, so domesticated, so fragile, so play-like, so docile, so boring, 
I want for you to know tonight that if you're bored with your faith, that God is bored with it too. There are creatures, living creatures in heaven right now who say that there's nothing else that I'd rather do than spend every second of my existence screaming his greatness. And we're just scrolling through Instagram. Oh, tonight, if you would see his glory and you would recapture sight for who we're worshiping, tonight I pray that you would right-size God and that you would right-size worship I pray that you would determine tonight that you are going to walk out of here with a vision for God that captivates every step of your life where you become enamored and overwhelmed and you start to skip things to spend time with him. Oh, if his glory would come down. This God who is majestically awesome, who is intensely personal, who's mysteriously three, who's internally sufficient, who's uniquely immortal, who's supremely reigning, who's infinitely holy, who's eternally unchanging, who's universally present, intimately knowing, irresistibly powerful, brilliantly wise, absolutely true, graciously kind, mercifully saving, unconditionally loving, perfectly just and exceedingly worthy showed up 2000 years ago. And he did not sit on a throne, he took upon a cross. So I just wanna close out tonight with Philippians chapter two in your mind. You've got Isaiah six, now let me just give you Philippians two. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, sitting on the throne of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My prayer is that you seeing that the infinite became intimate would shatter your world and would rewrite your story tonight. Let's pray. God, would you forgive us? Forgive us of when we allow people to be big and you to be so small. God, forgive us tonight of dreaming little dreams and settling for comfortable lives, for having a domesticated view of you. God, forgive us for treating you like you are secondary, like you are petty for not seeing you as the ultimate king of the universe that you actually are. God, would you astound us with your wonder? Would you ruin us with your greatness? Would you woo us with your love? If you've never made a decision to follow Jesus tonight, I just wanna give you an opportunity to do that. 
If something is clicking in you, if the eyes of your heart are opening and you realize that I've been settling for such a small life and such a small story because I've been worshiping such a small God, but tonight you want to surrender your whole life and your whole heart to the one true reigning king, then I just invite you to pray this prayer in boldness and confidence, just like Isaiah, say, woe is me. I'm a man, I'm a woman of unclean lips, but my eyes have seen the king. Jesus, I see you. I see you as beautiful. I see you as powerful. I see you as worthy. I surrender my life to you tonight. Here I am, Lord, send me tonight. I believe on your cross. I receive your resurrection. I will live for you until you come again. 